1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 15. Paul writes to Timothy, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The three epistles of Paul, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are designated as the pastoral epistles. They're called the pastoral epistles because in the first instance they were addressed to two men who had responsibility of pastoral ministry in churches. Those two men are, of course, Timothy and Titus. In these chapters, therefore, we have what you might describe as a complete handbook for the proper conduct of the local church. You have brought before you here matters of doctrine or teaching, of discipline, and of order. They're all dealt with here. The relative positions of men and women in the work of God. Regulations concerning elders, deacons, and members. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are recorded God's demands for those in particular office in the assembly. Qualifications, as I say, for elders are called bishops here and deacons. Timothy, sometimes called in the New Testament, Timotheus, it's the same person. He had been left in the position of minister over the church at Ephesus. Paul hoped to come there shortly. But in his absence, Timothy was to carry out Paul's instructions for the proper guidance of the congregation. And we see that from verse 14 of chapter 3. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But in verse 15, the reason for the writing of this first epistle is given. These words have reference not only to how Timothy himself should conduct himself, how he should behave in the house of God, but how the entire congregation should conduct themselves in the church. And these words are very simple. They're very straightforward. But they're also very challenging. And they're words that certainly apply today every bit as much as they did when Paul wrote them to Timothy. That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Notice three simple things here in this text. First of all, there is a description that needs to be examined. A description to be examined. Notice carefully how he puts it. The house of God. The church of the living God. Of course, when you go back in the chapter to verse 5, these words in parenthesis are to do with the responsibility of God's man in ruling his own house. And he says there, if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? 
the church of God, the house of God. It's always interesting in your Bible to study what I call the law of the first mention. There is, of course, the law of the further mention. There's the law of the final mention. But the law of the first mention is simply this. When you find the first reference to anything in Scripture, it provides a key to all the further references to that matter in Scripture. So if you look at your Bible and you find the very first mention of a place of worship per se, that's referred to as the house of God, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 28. So just go back there for a moment. Genesis chapter 28. And in verse 17, the Lord says of Jacob after he awaked out of his sleep, and he was afraid, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This is none other but the house of God. Now go down to verse 22 of the same chapter. And you'll see there that Jacob said, And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Now in between times, in verse 19, you will notice that he gave a name to the place. And he called the name of that place Bethel. You may or may not know that the word Beth in Hebrew is the word for house. The word El is the word for God, so you put them together. Bethel means literally the house of God. A place of worship. And when you go through your Old Testament, you will discover that this description, this term, was used of the temple. The temple was called the house of God. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 1. 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. This is a common phrase that's used then in various places in the Old Testament. Psalm 122 begins, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. The temple of God. It's used again in Psalm 134. You'll find it there in verse 1. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. You'll see it in the next Psalm, Psalm 135, verse 2. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. There are various references to the house of God. The Lord refers to it then in the prophet as my house. And he says of it, mine house shall be called of all nations, 
the house of prayer. You come into your New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 19, and in verse 46, the Lord Jesus, referring to that Old Testament Scripture, Verse 45 tells us, He went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, verse 46, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. My house, the house of the Lord, the house of God. It was used of the temple. It was also a description that could be used of the synagogue, because the synagogue was a place of collective worship. And for example, in Psalm 74, you have one of these references in verse number 8. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. Places of worship. Places of assembly. The synagogue was such a place. A place of gathered assembly where God was worshipped. And it is not without significance that in the book of Acts, when the word assembly is used, the word in the original is also the word for synagogue. You will know that verse, no doubt, in Hebrews, where the Lord is teaching us the importance of collective worship. The importance of gathering together in the house of God for public worship. And preachers are always very fond of quoting this verse. Some will accuse ministers of quoting the verse because it is self-serving. Because ministers want people to gather together in the house of the Lord. But it's not so important what the minister wants. It's what the Lord desires. And so Paul wrote in Hebrews 10, verse 25, not forsaking. And the word refers to abandoning. And that's what people, many have done in our day. They have abandoned public worship. They've abandoned the gathering together of the saints. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I must tell you that the word assembling there is the same root word in the Greek for synagogue. So you can read it this way. Not forsaking, not abandoning the synagoguing of ourselves together. The church, like the synagogue, is a place of gathered assembly where God is worshipped. And there's much evidence in the New Testament that the church of Jesus Christ and the various churches that were established modeled themselves on the synagogue worship. There were elders, for example, and there was public speaking and reading of the word. It was a place where folks met together to hear God's truth. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, the Bible says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now to come back to our text in 1 Timothy 3, the church is called here the house of God. It's called the house of God, not because God dwells 
in bricks and mortar. I do like our building. I even like the stained glass windows. They're very simple and there's no popery uh, depicted on them. That's really good. I like buildings that are pretty. But the fact of the matter is that the church is not the building. The church is not the building. I ministered for 10 years in Scotland. In the land of Scotland, there are many churches. There are many church buildings that used to be inhabited by gospel preachers. By men of God who preached the word and who had powerful ministries. Many of those buildings today are either closed or they've been turned into some other dwelling place, apartment blocks or whatever. Some of them are still standing but they're inhabited by apostate ministers. One of the most famous churches in Scotland is halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. It's called the Kirk of Shots. There was a great revival there in, in, in 1629. In 1629, a preacher called John Livingston preached at 17 years of age. And God sent at that time such a mighty deluge of blessing that over 500 people traced their conversion to that one sermon. There was a, an investigation done within 10 years of that event when they tried to find people who were converted at the Kirk of Shots revival. Many of them were located and none of them had backslidden. They were all going on with God. That church today has a woman pastor. I don't know that she preaches the gospel, but she must not have read 1 Timothy chapter 3 because she's not the husband of one wife. See, the Lord doesn't just dwell in bricks and mortar. The Lord dwells in the midst of His gathered saints. It's called here, the church is, the church of the living God. We don't worship a memory. We don't worship relics. We don't worship stones and stocks and statues. We worship a God who is alive. The church of the living God. And you will notice carefully that Paul wrote to Timothy here about behaving himself in the house of God, the church of the living God. Now the word church is the word in the Greek, ecclesia. There's a Spanish word, iglesia, which is similar. Ecclesia. It literally means the called out ones. That's what the church is, the called out ones, ones whom God has called out from the world. Among the Greeks, they use that noun, ecclesia, to designate a meeting of the citizens of a town, called by the town officials to an assembly. The church. So what is the church then? It's an assembly of God's people, called out of the world by sovereign grace 
unto salvation. That church may meet in a house. That church may meet in a rented building. That church may meet in a storefront. That church may meet in the fields or out on the mountains. As some of our covenanting forefathers did in days of persecution. Just because they didn't have buildings anymore, they were driven out of their buildings, didn't mean there was no church and there was no house of God. Because the gathering of the saints is the house of God. The assembly. And we today use the word church in a twofold manner. We use it to describe the whole body of believers in all ages. When we talk about the church, in the way that Jesus talked about it, when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, we're talking about the universal body of believers in all ages. From the very first one brought into the church to the last one before Jesus comes, that is the church. The elders aforementioned at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 were given a command. They were given a commission by Paul. What was it? Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. That's important. And to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed, notice it, the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That church is further described in Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, and I quote, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Hebrews, or sorry, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be, with, that it should be holy and without blemish. The church of the living God. It refers to believers, the body of believers in all ages, such as we find in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. It says of Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. The church. But not only does the church refer to the whole body of believers in all ages, the church is used to describe local assemblies of believers in particular locations. It describes local assemblies of believers in particular areas. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. In verse 22. Uh, Acts 15 verse 22. It says, then please that the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Notice this. The apostles and elders with the whole church. Here's a description of one church. But of course, that one church had many local assemblies. You turn to verse 41 of Acts 15. And there you have the plural. 
And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches, plural. See, there were a number of churches, even though there was one church. That's not a contradiction. That's complementary truth. The word church describes local assemblies of believers in particular areas. So we can talk, for example, in our own case, about the Free Presbyterian Church, and we're referring to a body. But then we can talk about the Free Presbyterian Church in Walnutport, and that's a particular local expression of that one church. This is how the word is often used. It is scriptural to speak of the gatherings of believers as churches. Now just turn with me to some of these verses. Romans chapter 16, in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 5. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sensria. A servant of the church. Look then at verse number 4 and verse number 5. At the end of verse 4 it says, But also all the churches, plural, of the Gentiles. And then verse 5, Likewise greet the church that is in their house. You see this interchangeability of the word. Church. Churches. They're all part of one church, but they're also individual churches. So it's scriptural to speak of gatherings of believers as churches. And I could use many other scriptures to prove this point. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 Unto the church of God which is at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28 the Bible says Besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. There it is, plural. Then you have Galatians chapter 1 verse 2. All the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Again, Colossians chapter 4 contains similar teaching. Colossians 4 and verses 15 and 16. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church singular, which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So you see these individual congregations are all referred to as churches, assemblies. The local church with scriptural government and discipline and with one minister is an institution of God to which every Christian should seek to be in fellowship. And Hebrews chapter 13 is very clear on that matter about submitting to them that have the rule over you, about obeying them that have the rule over you, and so on. But I think we've said enough about this description that's to be examined. There's also a duty to be emphasized. And what is that duty? It is proper conduct in the house of God, the church. It is God's will for his people to assemble for worship. Now, in the days of the pandemic, all the COVID restrictions and the various things that were going on, many of us felt the weight of the restrictions. 
particularly when at the beginning so little was known about this thing. It was thought to be very, very dangerous and in the case of some people it was, of course. But we were working in the dark largely, weren't we? And I think that that's something to be remembered when you think about certain laws and certain measures that are passed by health authorities and so on. I would not have liked to have been in their position. I'll be perfectly frank. It's easy to criticize when you're sniping from the trenches and you're not having to make the decisions. Well, when you're having to make decisions, that's a whole different matter altogether. Did everybody get it right? Of course they didn't. But it was a trial for many not to be able to meet together with other believers in the house of God. It was a trial to have to undergo certain restrictions even when we did meet. But in regular circumstances where we're not in the midst of a pandemic, when there's not a threat, an existential threat to human health, I don't believe that you can, in normal circumstances, be right and behave right in God's house if you don't go to God's house. How can you behave yourself in the house of God when you're not in the house of God? I don't read anywhere in my Bible that we're all to stay home on a Lord's day and edify ourselves. But I actually read the opposite. And I've just read the verse, I'll not repeat it. Hebrews 10.25 We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I didn't make that up. The Free Presbyterian Church didn't introduce that. That's God's Word. That's the Holy Spirit. And the, the Word of God does not teach that we're to be spiritual hobos and gypsies either. I remember very well in my younger days there was a fellow who was a friend of my father's and he would never go to any church, he would never join any church, he would never be a part of any church because he found out that all the churches that he went to, there was something wrong with them. He reminded me a bit of the fellow who's in the army and everybody else is marching left, right, left, right and he's marching right, left, right, left and they're all out of, they're all out of sync. They're the ones that are wrong. Not him. This fellow went along to hear a particular preacher one night at a gospel campaign. And when he spoke to the minister afterwards, the minister asked him where he fellowshiped normally, where you normally attend. And he answered that he didn't attend anywhere. He just followed the leading of the Lord every Lord's Day. Well, the minister told him in no uncertain terms that he wasn't following the leading of the Lord because he was denying the New Testament. And he said, furthermore, if you're looking for a perfect church, as soon as you get into it, it'll be imperfect. Because we all have our faults and our feelings. Bees don't get honey just by jumping quickly from flower to flower. They stay on each flower long enough to extract the nectar from the flower. I suppose it's possible to go from church to church and visit 52 churches a year, or if you went at night as well, it would be 104. I don't think that's God's will. 
Now I know, if I might just put this caveat in, that this is a day of great apostasy and darkness and liberalism. And if I had a dollar for every person who ever contacted me to say that in the area that, where they live there is no faithful church, uh, I would be richer than Bill Gates or some of these characters. This is a sad day where there's a famine in many places for the hearing of the words of the Lord. But I really believe that if we seek, we will find, and the Lord will direct us where we should receive our spiritual food. And First Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, it says here, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And it's impossible to obey that scriptural injunction if you're not in a place. And there aren't those who labor among you. And they're not over you in the Lord. How can you obey that scripture without being part of a New Testament church? It is the will of God that we throw our weight behind a work of God. But this is not just a duty. This is a great blessing. This is a great blessing to the soul. I'm thankful I was brought up in a home where this was drummed into me from the very beginning. My parents were not spiritual hobos. My parents were committed to the work of God and they were there morning, noon and night. When the church door was open, they were there. Whether it be Sabbath school, whether it be children's meeting, whether it be Sunday morning, Sunday night, special meetings, they were there. Always there. Unless someone was sick. Psalm 84 verse 4 says, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, they will be still praising thee. Again, the verse I quoted earlier, Psalm 122 verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. God wants us to be in the house of the Lord. I always love what it says of our Savior in the Gospel. In Luke chapter 4 verse 16, it actually puts it like this. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, just underline that, as his custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. I never remember a time when I was a youngster when I would waken on a Sunday morning and I would say to my parents, are we going to church today? I knew not to ask that question. I knew we were going to church today. Because that's what we always did. And what a blessing that is to make it your custom to be under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God unless you're sick or bereaved. And even sometimes when you're bereaved, one of the best things to do is to be under the ministry of the Word. That you might grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Savior. God has established it in Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And the word pastor and teacher should have a slash there. It's the same office, pastor, teacher. What for? For the perfecting of the saints. 
for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. We need the preaching of the word that we might be built up in the faith. That we might grow in the knowledge of our blessed Savior. So there is a description to be examined. The church of the living God, the house of God. There's a duty to be emphasized. We should be in the house of the Lord. But there's also a definition to be explained here, thirdly and lastly. And what is that definition? Which is the pillar, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You could say the pillar or the bulwark or the stay or the support of the truth. That's what the church is. This idea is taken from Greek architecture. You think about a pillar. What is a pillar? A pillar is a support under the floor which holds up the house. This is what Paul is talking about in relation to the church. The church is to hold forth the truth and to hold up the truth and to support the truth. By the ministry of the church, the truth is defended. And oh, how we need to do that. Because there are those who will preach against the truth. There's those who will speak falsehoods. And we need to defend the truth. Buy the truth and sell it not, the proverb says. One of the covenanters, Samuel Rutherford, said, We dare not give one hair's breadth of God's truth away, because it is not ours to give but God's. It's God's truth. And it is to be defended. It is to be spread abroad. It is to be disseminated. We're to tell others of Christ. The word is to be taught. The word is to be preached. And let me tell you that any place which doesn't declare God's truth is not a church in the biblical sense at all. Oh yes, there are many buildings and religious organizations and they call themselves churches. But if they do not preach and defend God's truth, they are not churches at all in the biblical sense. You see, the ministry of the word and the spread of the gospel has been entrusted to the church as its responsibility in the world. The Bible speaks of this. Paul talked to Timothy about having entrusted him with the gospel. We have been those who have been placed the God, where, where the gospel has been placed in trust to us to look after it, to spread it, to preach it. John Calvin said, silence in the church is the banishment and crushing of the truth. I know how the scriptures must be spread around and sinners evangelized. I was so encouraged this morning. I told one or two of the folks I saw a young couple passing by our building this morning and there's a scripture at the front. Bright yellow poster. Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I saw that young couple stop right in front of that text and stand there and read it. And I thought, well, praise the Lord. I pray God will burn that into their souls. 
head hits the pillow at night, they'll not be able to forget that. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. C.H. Spurgeon went into a building one day and he was always wanting to test the acoustics in buildings. He loved to do that in days when there there were no microphones. And so Spurgeon came into this church one day and he went right up to the pulpit. And when he was there in the pulpit, he quoted a gospel text at the top of his voice. Spurgeon didn't know it. There was a workman in the bowels of the church working away under one of the pews at the back of the church. He heard that gospel word. And God used that as an arrow to that man's soul. And that man was converted through that word. One of our congregations in Northern Ireland is called Cumber Free Presbyterian Church. They had a huge billboard, one of these big massive signs placed adjacent to their church property. And as you would be driving along there, it would would just hit you right up the face as you're driving along that highway. There was a man who used to drive that route every day in his truck. And he came under such conviction saying that text every day. By his own admission later on, he tried to find alternate routes to go to work. So that he didn't have to drive past there and see that text at that junction. But he couldn't get away from it. And the word kept on germinating and percolating away in his heart until it broke him. And he was brought to the Savior. One of my colleagues in ministry, he's now retired. But I remember him telling how one Sunday afternoon he was on his way to a billiards club to play. Billiards as he always did on a Sunday afternoon. There were a group of men standing on the other side of that street, preaching in the open air. And one of them just announced a text. My spirit shall not always strive with man. And my brother in ministry said that that verse broke his heart. He could not get away from it. He couldn't stop thinking about it until he bowed the knee and came to the Savior. You see, in the hand of the Holy Spirit, there's power in the Word. And we need to understand that. We need to be proclaiming God's truth. The ministry of the Word has been entrusted to you and to me. Angels are not called to do it. I'm sure they could do a better job. No doubt they could. But the Lord hasn't called angels to do it. He's called men to do it. And friends, if the truth is not found in the church, if it's not found among Christians, where is it to be found? If we don't defend and preach the book, then who will? In an unbelieving age, we must stand for the truth. And we must set before sinners He who is the embodiment of all truth. Even the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. May God help us to know how we should behave ourselves in the house of God. Remembering that it is His church, it's the church of the living God. It is the pillar, it is the ground of the truth. 
May we always be known as those who defend, who preach and who disseminate truth to the salvation of the lost. May God help us. Amen.